0: Hello and welcome to the Empathy for Breakfast show. I am Mimi Nicklin and I am your host of a show that travels the world, talking to people from all corners of our planet about empathy, about our ability to connect and to understand each other and how that is changing our world. These conversations won't only unpack the amazing power of empathy in our societies and our businesses, but they will remind us that we are all far more alike then we are different. I believe that there has never been a better time to talk about empathy, to talk about our need to reconnect as people, as human beings. The more the world talks about empathy, the more empathy the world will have. So let's get talking. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Empathy for Breakfast show. Today, I am joined by a guest who asked me a question that I didn't know the answer to. Not that rare, but incredibly exciting, and I've invited him back to have a full conversation about this. Today, I'm with Sharmal Valabji. He is a South African born sports scientist, a psychologist, an author, and a former monk. He works as a high-performance coach with elite athletes, with Olympians, with sports teams, and executives. Sharmal specializes in achieving peak performance and flow states using evidence-based science in combination with psychology and ancestral wisdom. He's a best-selling author, a TEDx speaker, and a board member with the United Nations Change Maker Conference. Sharmal, I'm so pleased you're here. Thank you for joining us
1: Thank you so much, Mimi. I'm excited to be on the Empathy for Breakfast show.
0: I am as well, because we're talking about food. (laughs) And I don't think there's a better conversation. So for the audience today, we are talking about how does the food we eat fuel our body and how does that affect our ability to empathize? And as I said in the introduction, I met Sharmel. A few weeks ago on his podcast, on his show. And he asked me, Mimi, what's the role of nutrition in how we empathize? Now, I gave an answer, but I was so fascinated by it that I went away to start really reading up about it. And Sharma, you're here today to unpack that. So let's start at the top. Let's start with what does empathy mean to you, Sharma?
1: So empathy is quite a lovely subject for me. Firstly, at the very surface level, it's one's ability to understand what someone's experiencing or what somebody's feeling. But I think you can really take it deeper. And for me, empathy really converts to compassion when empathy becomes action. So I look at it at multiple levels. First, I look at it at a surface level and you can look at it emotionally or intellectually. But what's most exciting is when empathy becomes compassion is when the feeling instigates the need to act. And and that's really where it's fascinating. So that in a nutshell is what empathy and compassion is for me.
0: And Sharma, you're in India at the moment. You've spent a lot of time, obviously, in India. How have you seen the pandemic and the reality of the last 12 months or so impact that behavior? Has it helped people increase their empathy? Has it decreased their
1: empathy? What have you seen? That's quite a fascinating question. You know, the intellectual empathy has definitely gone up. So you've seen people intellectualizing with everyone, they understand people are lonely, people are depressed, all of that. The actionable compassion component of it is somewhat questionable. And what I don't like, and I've not seen too many people speak about this, is that the pandemic has in some shape or form rewarded self-centeredness a lot so those who saved money right had more money to invest when the market crashed those when the market crashed they put in money they reaped the benefit of it those who had a lot of disposable income could get away to a remote beach island somewhere and lock themselves down for three months those who had large amounts of disposable income stocked up on a lot of supplies when there was lockdown You know, they had a lot of luxury. So in some shape and form, you found that those who were a little self-centered were the ones who sailed through a really difficult pandemic situation. And I'm a little fearful, Mimi, because that's not really the behavior that's conducive for The success of a society, of humanity, of a planet, or even of an individual. So my sense is that for a large amount of people, the suffering was real and it came to the surface. But for a decent sized amount of people who, and and this is where it gets scary. It's not that the quantum of people who had impacted by the self-centeredness in a positive way is large, but they are influential. So you get a smaller number of people who are highly influential mm. that were rewarded by self-centered behavior that are now going forward into the world thinking, I need to be like this, which is mm. somewhat scary for me. So you've seen all of it come through in, in the pandemic. And I think people like you and me have a role right now to recondition the mind to teach people that a selfish behavior during a time of fear is not the methodology to move forward.
0: Such an interesting perspective. And I wonder if that selfish mentality that you're talking about is behind far more of the problems that we're seeing in the world. I mean, they manifest in the headlines as racial or gender or equity related. But when I listen to you now, I I wonder how much that self-centeredness is underneath many of these problems. And of course, those that have more can do more of that self-centered behavior. Now, you were a former monk, which I think I could talk to you all day about this. I mean, what an absolutely fascinating way to have spent some of your life. You mentioned earlier, when I asked you, what does empathy mean? You immediately built in compassion, which is generally a very Buddhist way to come at that answer. I also have studied this a lot. Um, Tell me a little bit more, tell our audience a little bit more about the connection between empathy and compassion, but then
1: specifically
0: in the performance world. So what have you taken from that experience as a monk and are you now using to help people perform?
1: That's, I love that. So performance for everyone listening is a blend of humility and confidence. Confidence comes from competence. And I generally approach competence through data from a very data-centric point of view. So I'm using a lot of data getting people to train, the more you practice, the more competent you get, the more confident you get. That's one vicious cycle on, on confidence. But the second part of it, humility is very, very fascinating. See, humility is the foundation of learning. And your humility comes from one of two ways. It comes from your cultural upbringing, or it comes from a spiritual practice that you've inculcated in your life. Now, humility teaches you that you can learn from anyone and everyone. But humility also teaches you to accept your failures and your successes with grace. It teaches you to be grateful for, uh, to others, even though they are successful and you're not. That's what humility teaches you. Because it's quite fascinating. A person who's not grounded will look at someone else's success and become envious or jealous. A person who's spiritually grounded and humble will be able to pause for a moment, look at that success, and be happy for that person Because they're realizing that if that person can do it, I can do it with a little bit more hard work, right? So that's what humility does. Humility allows you to balance the energy of gratitude with the drive of performance. You see, what happens, is when you, in the world of performance, we're always chasing something in the future. We're chasing, there's more money, faster times, higher goals, whatever it is you're chasing. When the mind is looking into the future, there's always this feeling of uneasiness insecurity because it's not there. It's natural. Gratitude is the energy of the now. Gratitude helps you appreciate what you have right here and right now. Now, it's humility that balances gratitude with drive. Without humility, you can't pull the mind from the future to appreciate what you have right now. You know? so all of that comes from a deep spiritual practice which you learn in as being a monk you know in fact one of the tattoos on my hand it says that be as tolerant as a tree and be as humble as a blade of grass tolerant as a tree means whatever life throws at you stand there stand with your strong values your strong ethics speak and then be as humble as a blade of grass is. don't look down on anyone you know you, you be there be as grounded as natural as humble as you can but Another interesting part with spirituality is spirituality teaches you to tap into your intuition. And I come from a world of performance where opportunities are one hundredth of a second. You know, you blink your eye, the ball's gone past you, or something like that. Okay. And when you're in that world, things are happening too fast for the rational mind to perceive its options and act. So you really have to be guided by an energy you trust or a voice you trust. That voice you trust is intuition. Mm. So when you're deeply grounded, you have more faith in that voice that's speaking to you. And in a world of performance where you think you're governed by your rational mind, but you're not. You're governed by a skill that you've automated in combination with your inner voice. These are the two things that help you navigate this world. And that's where spirituality also comes in. It teaches you to trust the voice your rational mind is trying to silence.
0: Wow, Let's stay all day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, (laughs) Some things that really stood out from that answer for me. First of all, the fact that you mentioned intuition, because it's a really important word to me. And when I had my transformation moment in my life, when I really discovered my passion and sort of journey towards empathy, it was because I said to a life coach, I'm using my intuition. And she said, Mimi, hold on one moment. Is it intuition or is it empathy? So that really stood out for me, what you were just saying, because there is such a connection point. Do you have to use intuition to be empathetic? No. But if you are attuned to your intuition, does that elevate what you can do with your empathy? absolutely so that really stood out and i loved that reference to as tolerant
1: as a tree was it tolerant as a tree that you said as tolerant as a tree as humble as tolerant a blade of grass and, and maybe I you love that. yeah you mentioned something the relationship between empathy and intuition is so direct but most people don't see it you see what's the difference is in every situation that we are faced in there's an internal variable and an external variable There's an internal lens and an external lens. In the pandemic, someone could say, what's scaring you? It's scaring me that I'm unsafe or that the economy is being impacted. That's the external lens. The internal lens is how my mind is perceiving that situation. Now, if you look at empathy, empathy is the external lens. Intuition is the internal lens.
0: Mm-hmm. Like we
1: generally cultivate external before internal. A person who's not aware of the external cannot cultivate the internal. the world will comes in before it goes out again so it's a very direct relationship, but the first place of helping a person really be in touch with who they are is first help them to be in touch with the outside world, with what they can see. Because intuition is something you can't see, you have to feel. How can you trust something you can't see when you don't even trust what you can see?
0: Oh, big, big questions for a yeah. dish, I'm Mal.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, before we try and answer the biggest questions our world is facing today, let's stop and talk about self-empathy, which is where you were just going, where you were talking about, you know, internalizing, understanding what's going on inside. And this question that you asked me that really provoked this conversation today, which is, what is the relationship between self-empathy and nutrition? So how does the food we eat support or nourish that psychological state? How does that impact the conversation we were just having? How important is our
1: food? If our food is super important. We are not a byproduct of the food we eat, we're a byproduct of the food we digest. So your gut has bacteria, microbiome in it. And that microbiome plays an important role in what is called your brain chemical balance because it digests food and that food goes into your bloodstream, which affects your brain chemical balance. So you have hormones like dopamine, like GABA, like serotonin that are all controlled by the food you eat. And these hormones drive every decision that you make. Your happy hormone is called serotonin and almost 90% of your serotonin is actually found in your gut. So if you're not eating well to keep the balance of these hormone in place or your bacterial balance in place, the main driver for happiness and good decision making is impacted. So you can ask metaphorically, how is it possible to start the car without the key? So how can you be happy if the main hormone for happiness is absent because it's absent from the way you consume food? And there's a beautiful study that showed at the University of Lubeck where they speak of carbs and protein. And they took a, it's a nice example, which we can give our audience here. So if you walk into a room and there's a stranger sitting at the table and there's $100 on the table. Now this is the experiment. The stranger walks in and the stranger gets to decide how much of that $100 they wanna give to you. And the stranger decides, I'm gonna give you $10. Now you have a decision to make. You can accept the $10 and leave with that and he leaves with 90. Or if you reject the 10, both of y'all leave with nothing. And they did the study, but 30 minutes before the study, they fed, each sample group a diet of carbohydrates and a diet of proteins. And they found that there was a higher than 90% rejection in the people who ate carbs. So people who ate a high carb diet rejected the $10 more than people ate proteins. And when we broke that down, we found that the people who ate proteins had a higher level of an amino acid called tyrosine, which stimulates dopamine, which allows you to look into the future. The people who are eating high carb diets, are reacting to the now. They're unable to see the impact of any decision they make into the future. So these are the people who would uh, be highly agitated, would think the world is against them, would find like the unrealistic expectations of them, would feel like nobody uh, understands, they're not being seen, they're not being heard, they're treated unfairly. If they're having all of these emotions ruminating consistently in their mind, the first place they need to look is at their diet, because that hormone or the lack of hormones driving quality decision-making is not being present in their food. So how are they even expected to become mindful? Now, we have a lot of mindfulness coaches who teach people practice mindfulness, but the truth is that mindfulness can only happen if the hormone balance is present in the brain. The hormone balance is absent. You can't ask a person to be mindful because the balance needed to be able to perform that activity is not even there. So it's incredibly important for us to conscious of our food. And and what's scary is that the food we're eating is now really not manufactured or processed in the manner that we need it to, in the manner that is safe. So the amount of pesticides, the amount of toxins, the amount of uh, xenoestrogens in plastics that are leaching into food are all affecting your brain balance. If your brain balance is out of whack because of nutrition, there's absolutely no way you can be empathetic or there's absolutely no way you can be compassionate. And, and the only thing, the only saving grace in certain cultures is the fact that in a lot of places, service, kindness, compassion has been deeply ingrained in their culture. So they grew up that way. But if you remove that conditioning and if you look purely at diet, we we flag down the wrong road.
0: I mean, I, I just wonder why we don't have this conversation more. Because as I said at the very beginning, your question to me was the first time anyone had asked me this question and the first time I had given it much thought. Now I'm a yoga therapist in my personal life, so I studied ayurvedic diet and all of these things it's not that i didn't know it but even as someone who has studied this i hadn't made that connection between what we're eating and how that enables us to emotionally use our prefrontal cortex right actually emotionally engage use our emotional intelligence and i think it's a conversation that should be far you know spoken about far more i i haven't seen it in the media it's certainly not circulating so for people that this is still quite new to including me what are some ways that people can improve that shamal what, what are some of the tips that they can use with their diet or perhaps with their life to recreate this balance?
1: So the first thing you need to do uh, is reculture your gut bacteria. And the best way to do that is just eat organic whole foods, plant-based fruits and vegetables. The second thing is to eat fermented foods. A lot of probiotics and prebiotics will definitely help to reculture your gut bacteria. Certain dairy products like colostrum, for example, or ghee increases the production of a butyrate in the gut. And butyrate is a very, very healthy probiotic or bacteria that helps culture that and maintains the balance with serotonin in the body. The, the next thing we should do is we should carve away the things that are really eroding our gut health. And that is your vegetable oils, your processed sugars, your spicy foods, your wheats, your gluten, things like that, that are perforating your gut lining. You gotta get that out. Because if you don't get it out of there, then your gut will never really return to normal, natural. So these are really the low hanging fruit that someone can try to do to reculture their gut bacteria. And if anyone has any leaky gut syndrome, then what I would suggest is get onto colostrum, for example. Colostrum is a, you know, it's a milk-based powder. It's the first milk produced after There's one for four days. Very, very, it's eight times higher in antibodies, so it heals the gut. If you're someone, for example, who can't lose weight and you're putting on a lot of weight around your midsection, for example, then you have what's probably called a fatty, fatty liver. So, you know, supplements like a milk thistle or having certain whole grains will help detoxify that liver. When your body is healthy, then your body and your mind can align so that you're not just feeling for someone else, but you're feeling yourself. As well, and this is a great place to start.
0: It is a great place to start, and I think you know you've said two really well. You've said many poignant things in in this twenty minutes, but two things that have really stuck with me. This last one, which is that what we are eating is deeply impacting how we can emotionally connect both with ourselves and with the world. And where we started, which was around sort of self-centeredness and inward looking and focusing on your own world. When we look at the problems that the world is facing, from Black Lives Matters to segregation, loneliness you know, all the turmoil, the trauma that the world is under today, I think this conversation is incredibly well placed to start looking at how we heal that. And it's probably no sort of coincidence that as our diets globally spiral into disaster, you know, fast food and cheap sort of replacements and all of these things that we eat every day, um, and the 30 years of declining empathy that we have seen all around the world. So I think this is a conversation that you and I need to continue. Every time I speak to you, I think I could do it forever. But we are at 20 minutes. And I like to keep these sessions empathetically short to fit in with people's lives. So I really hope that that's been valuable. Before we move on to our very last question, um, Shamal, perhaps you could just tell everyone about your new book, Breathe, Believe, Balance, where they can get it and what you've been writing
1: about. So uh yeah, you can get Breathe, Believe, Balance. It's available on Amazon or all actually all bookstores. You can get them now. It's a book about self-discovery more than anything else. It t- teaches you how to fall in love with yourself, how to deepen emotional connections with others. It teaches you about your relationship with your environment and how to re-engineer your environment, better align with your core values. And the last chapter that it takes you towards is really how to find purpose in life and how to, in the words of Viktor Frankl, how to self-actualize through self-transcendence. So, how do you give the best version of yourself to society, and through that find who you are? And uh, yes, so you can do that, or you can find me on Instagram. I'm always writing new stuff and putting new things out there. So, it'd be nice to interact.
0: And I can I can back that. You are always saying fantastic things. So, definitely pop on over to Instagram. I will share all of Shaimel's links in the notes as well, so that you can find him. Have a read of the book. It really is full of the most phenomenal advice. And as someone who has found her purpose it is still phenomenal advice on how to deepen that now before we end today the big question this is all about understanding each other tell me Shomal if you could have breakfast with one person who would it be with where would you go and what would you be having
1: it's tough the one person I'm really fascinated with and I'd love to have breakfast with is Sasha Baron Cohen. <laughs> I would love to have breakfast with him. God knows where I'll take him. I, I'm normally fasting in the morning. But uh, I can any place in the world, I can imagine a little French street side cafe having a coffee and a croissant and just listening to him go on about life.
0: Amazing. I love that answer. This is without a doubt my most favorite question because the answers just immediately put you into the shoes of, of someone else. You know, I'm already in Paris right now. I can smell the coffee. So Shaimal Valabji, thank you so much for joining me for breakfast and for being here on the show and for sharing just a little of the amount of wisdom that you have to share with the world. For everybody listening, thank you for joining us today. I hope that you really found some enlightenment in this discussion about how the food we eat fuels our body and affects our ability to empathize. And I do hope to see you next week. Bye.
1: Thank you very much. Bye.
0: And with that... Another episode of the Empathy for Breakfast show comes to a close. I would like to thank IQ Films, who produced this episode, and DJ Ciel for my soundtrack and music. Do join me online to carry on the conversation. I'm incredibly active on Instagram and LinkedIn and Twitter, at Mimi Nicklin. I would love to talk to you all more. Meanwhile, spread the word, share the empathy. Because after all, the more the world talks about empathy, the more empathy the world will have. I'm Mimi Nicklin. Thank you very much for tuning in. And I look forward to seeing you again on the Empathy for Breakfast show.